Today we're going to be studying the book of Ezra. So you can turn to the book of Ezra in your Bibles. Our last time that we were in the book of Ezra, we finished up chapter 2. So today we're going to go on to chapter 3. So you can begin turning there in your Bibles. As you're doing that, let me remind you that Ezra is a book that allows us, it's a study that allows us the opportunity to consider restoration. Restoration uh, in our walks with God. And if we're honest with ourselves, at one point in time or another, I suspect during 2014, that there was a period in that year where you drifted a little bit, you wandered a little bit, you weren't quite where you wanted to be in your relationship with God. And so, let's be honest also, 2015, there's a pretty good possibility that there's going to be a day, a week, maybe a month, hopefully not longer, but that there's probably going to be a period during 2015 where you're going to drift and where you're going to wander and you're not going to be quite in that place where you want to be in your relationship with God. And so Ezra chapter 3 then I think can serve as a very practical chapter because it's a chapter about restoration, restoration in our walks with God. And as we've already considered, we know that the children of Israel had been a people that had wandered away from the things of God. There was a time where they were in a right place with the Lord but gradually, a little bit here, a little bit there, they began to drift. They began to wander uh, in their devotion to him. As that went on, they began to rebel against him. We see in the scripture that they began to go after other gods even, worshiping and serving false gods, the gods that were just created sort of with their hands and out of their own imagination. And as we looked at last week, they, as a result of that, they had to experience the consequences of those actions. And for them, the experience then was a period of captivity. Now perhaps in your walk, you've drifted a little bit. And you look at the closing days of 2014 and you think, you know, I'm not quite where I need to be. I'm really not where I want to be. I want to be further along in my walk with the Lord. Well, then I think that this scripture will speak to our hearts because is there the place of restoration? Does God want us to come back to him? And if we do, will he accept us? The answer, I hope, you could all cry out, absolutely, yes. You know, some of us may be here this morning because it's the first Sunday of a new year. And perhaps in your mind you said to yourself, you know what, this year I'm turning over a new leaf. I'm going to be at church every Sunday morning. I'm going to be where I need to be. I'm going to do what I need to do. You know, these sorts of things. And you come back. But maybe in the back of your mind you're wondering, will God actually bring me back? Will He accept me back? Will He bring me to that place where I once was before? Or will He bring me beyond that place where I was previously, and the answer again is yes. Now during our last study together, we, f we considered the fact that sometimes God, after repeated warnings, will give us over to our sin. That's sort of the final remedy. God's been saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, but we keep doing it. That the final remedy is for God to kind of give us over to our sins. And we consider that's not God's first choice. But eventually... After repeated warnings and close calls, the only solution to us is to allow us to experience the consequence of our sins. You know, many of us, I think, let's be honest today, hey, we're all friends, right? How many of you have a lead foot? Drive a little bit too fast. Shame on you. Look at you. Oh my gosh. You drive perhaps a little bit faster than you should. You know the rules, if I stay within five to six miles an hour, no one will bother me unless I'm in Pennington, because they're crazy up there in Pennington. <laughs> And uh, I got pulled over for going 26 in Pennington. I was like, seriously? And he said, yes. But he was very gracious. Uh, anyhow, that's a little ridiculous. But anyway, you, some of us, we have perhaps a, you know, a lead foot. 
we know I should really slow down. The Bible says, obey, you know, the laws of the land, all these things. I don't want to get a ticket. It's expensive. All these things. But we go too fast. And all of a sudden, what happens? Police car comes flying by, or you hear the sirens in the background there, and what do you do? Your prayer life increases, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, dear Lord, please, God, anything, you know, not this time, help me, or whatever it may be. And so then the, the police car flies by you, wasn't interested in you, and you slow down, and you look at your speedometer, and you make sure you're going where you need to go, but five minutes, ten minutes, five days, ten weeks go by, and next thing you know, you're flying down the road again, and it's a close call. And God was merciful that last time. But eventually, especially as we're dealing, and, and you could say that's area of sin, but as we're dealing with sin, God allows, if you will, mercifully these close calls. But if they're not working, God will take it up a notch. I shared the example last week that there's a person that's sort of freaking out, ah, panicking and whatever, and sometimes someone just needs to kind of give them a slap on the face to sort of wake them up and bring them back to their senses. Well, sometimes God allows us to experience the consequences of our sin, the pain of our sin, to wake us up and to bring us back to our senses. But here's an important thing. It is always God's desire to bring about a remedy to our sin problem. So God doesn't send us into captivity. God doesn't slap us across the face. He doesn't get us pulled over by the police so that he can say, there, now you deserve it. Or, you know what, I'm sick of you, and so you're going to feel a little pain here. And now you'll see how I feel in my heart when you do these things against me. That's not what God's about. God does those things to remedy our sin problem so that we finally come to the place where you say, you know what, I am so tired of trading this for that. Trading away my relationship with God for this momentary temporal pleasure. I don't want it anymore. He brings us to the end of ourselves so that we say, I don't want a cheap substitute anymore. That's God's goal, is to bring us to the place of returning. And Ezra chapter 3 provides for us a perfect example of that returning and the process of restoration. So hopefully by now you've found your way to Ezra chapter 3. Let's look at the first two verses it says, now when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. And then arose Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priest and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, there's a period of time between chapter 2 and chapter 3. If you look back to chapter 2, verse 70, it ends by saying, and you know, all the people are gathered, then they went back to their various towns. Chapter 3 begins with the people reconvening again, and it says, as one people, they gathered to Jerusalem there. So there's a period of time between those two chapters. And we don't exactly know what the period of time is. I've read a number of different commentaries during the week. Some said two weeks, some said it was two months, and others said it was maybe as many as two years. And what that tells me is nobody has any clue as to how long this period of time was in between here. But what we do know is that they come back together and they do so, as you look at in verse 1, in the seventh month. Now that's led some to conclude that it was seven months in the land. So they, they came back from Babylon, they're in the land for seven months, now they're gathering together and they're going to do what they do. But I don't think that's what this passage necessarily is implying because what we see is that there's a number of feasts that are going to take place at this gathering that take place in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. So that's what we're referring to. That's why it could probably be years that they've come back, a year and a half or maybe even a little bit longer than that. But they come back and it's the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. 
Now, that would equate for you and I to the month of July. We'd say, oh, then they're back there in the summer, it's July. But the Jews follow a different calendar than you and I. We follow what we call the Gregorian calendar, and there's also a Jewish calendar. As a matter of fact, there's multiple Jewish calendars. So the Jews have a civil calendar. They also have a religious calendar. They have a variety of calendars that is there. That's why the Jewish New Year, which those of you that go to public schools, when's the Jewish New Year take place? You get off from school and you love it. It takes place in September, which is the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. Who has a New Year celebration in the seventh month? Well, that's because there's a civil calendar and a religious calendar. And so the, the seventh month in the Jewish calendar equates with our September slash October. It starts about the middle of September, goes through the middle of October. It's what is known as the month of Tishri. And the month of Tishri is a very important month in the Jewish religious calendar because there is a number of events that take place during that month mandated by God for the Jewish people to practice. So I said the Jewish New Year takes place there, Rosh Hashanah. Day, uh, the Day of Atonement, which we call Yom Kippur, takes place in the month of Tishri. Celebration of a couple of feasts, the Feast of Trumpets takes place in Tishri. And the Feast of Tabernacles, as we're going to see today, takes place in the month of Tishri. So it's a month of dedication to the Lord. And there's a lot of religious activity that takes place during this particular month. It's significant that Ezra here mentions that they reconvene in the seventh month. And the reason why it is significant is because the word of God told him to do so. And so that gives us insight into what's going on in the hearts of the people that are regathering here in Jerusalem. They are now committed to following the word of God. The word of God says we gather and do these things, so let's gather and do these things. These guys are taking the Word of God seriously. And as we consider returning to the Lord, maybe you've wandered this last year, maybe you've wandered this last couple of months, or perhaps it's something in the future that's going to come your way during the year 2015. When we have come from a period of wandering and we want to return back to the Lord, here's the first lesson that we can learn, and that is return to the Word of God. So I want you to skim through chapter 3 with me. Look at verse 2. It says... Then arose Joshua, the son of Josedek, and all these other people with him. They built the altar of God of Israel. They offered offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses. Verse 4 goes on. It says, they kept the, the feast of booths as it is written. Also in verse 4, and they offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule. That's as it is written. Skip down to verse 8, in which it talks about a number of people laying the foundation temple. And then at the bottom it says, according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. So the first step in the process of restoration is returning to a commitment to the Word of God. And it's because the people of Israel had drifted from the Word of God that the people of Israel ended up in the sin that they found themselves ensnared by. And it's the exact same thing for you and I. So if we're not in the Word of God, reading it, studying it, considering it, but even more importantly, if we're not committed to it. You see, you could read the Bible but not be committed to the Bible. You could have daily devotions every single day, but not be committed to the Bible. You're committed to the Bible when you say, you know what, what it says I will do. And whether I agree with it, whether I like it or not, I'm going to follow it. That's a commitment to the Bible. And these guys here are returning to a commitment to the Word of God. What does God's Word say, and how do we put it into action? Well, it says gather in the seventh month and celebrate these feasts. So what are they going to do? They're going to gather in the seventh month, and they're going to do those particular feasts. So they return. And they pay, pay careful attention to know and keep God's word. If you are coming from a period of wandering, 
Step one is return to a commitment to the Word of God. Step two is just as significant, certainly, and that is the altar of sacrifice. So here are the people back in the land. They're committed to following and living by the Word of God. And based on that study, it leads them, look at verse 2, where it says, then arose Joshua, then arose Zerubbabel, and all the kinsmen, and they built the altar of God. Verse 3 says the same thing. They set the altar in its place. The Word of God led them to this place of sacrifice. Now, you can imagine, 75 years out of the land, the land had lied in ruin for all of that time period. There's all sorts of things, no doubt, that as a nation they need to devote their attention to. Roads, no doubt, needed to be rebuilt. Bridges need to be rebuilt. Schools and farms and businesses. All of these things need time and energy and money. There's no walls around the city, or at least they're broken down that are around the city. They need to be rebuilt. Surely God wants the people to be safe, right? There's no temple. That's, I'm sure, where God wants us to devote all of our time and all of our attention. Well, the reality is this. All of those things would come in time. But first things first. And after returning to the Word of God, the first thing that the people do is build the altar of sacrifice. You see, many of us, I think, we want to get back on track with God. We remind ourselves of a place we were previously with God, and we create this long list of things, 500 things that I need to do to get back right with God. Well, 500 things is a lot of things to accomplish, isn't it? And if I have a list of two things and a list of 500 things, I'm more likely to finish the two things than I am the 500 things. Because I look at the list of 500 things, and I say, it's just too much. I'll do nothing. And the problem with many of us as we try to come back to the Lord is we, we set up all these things that we have to do where God says, no, first things first. There's one thing you need to do. You need to come back to the place of sacrifice. And that's why the altar needs to be built first. For the first simple reason is it's easy to do. God doesn't want our return to him to be hard and challenging. He doesn't want it to be, to be difficult. He doesn't want there to be some obstacle that most of us aren't going to get past, but only the committed ones will. He wants all of us to return to him. He wants all of us to be in a right place with him. So he makes it as simple as possible. Father, forgive me. I've sinned. And he forgives us because he's gracious. He wants us to return. So I would encourage you, if God is leading you, God is directing you to do something in your walk with him, do it. Don't hinder yourself with this long list of things that you must do first. Just do what he's leading you to do and guiding you. Do what you can now and get started. Now the second reason though, more significantly I would suggest to you, as to why God wanted the altar to be built first was because the altar was the place that sin was dealt with. So when we speak of the temple, remember the temple building wasn't so much a building as it was a compound. So there was a building on the compound, but it wasn't like our modern day churches where we drive up, park in the parking lot, and then go into the building and do whatever it is we're going to do at that church service there. Most of what took place at the temple didn't take place in the building. It took place outside of the building in the courtyard area, and particularly the very first place that the, the Jewish believers would come to was this altar. It was called the brazen altar, or the altar of sacrifice. That's the place where the common man would gather at the altar of sacrifice. And returning to God always begins with returning to the place of sacrifice. Now, the New Testament correlation to that is the cross of Jesus Christ. So returning to God always begins with us going back to 
the cross of Christ. And this is significant and something that we don't want to miss. Because sometimes for us, returning to God means a special determination not to go back to where I was before. Or returning to God means a greater commitment to serve God or to do whatever it may be. But the reality is returning to God after a period of wandering, whether the wandering has been a week or it's been a year or even longer than that, it begins with returning to the place of sacrifice, which is the cross of Christ. Not a Bible reading plan, not a commitment to be at church three days a week, not some plan of good works to hopefully satiate God for all that you've done to hurt Him, whatever it may be, but it begins and the place of return is the cross of Christ. And so the Jews now, they return to the Holy Land and they build an altar so that there would be a covering for their sin. The altar is the place of atonement. And the place of atonement, covering, is the place of forgiveness. You remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 9? It's a verse no doubt you're familiar with. But it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It has to begin at the brazen altar. So for you and I, what does that look like as New Testament believers? It simply means this. It means confessing our sin. And to confess means to agree with. So we agree with the Scripture. That's the commitment to the Word of God. And we agree with the Scripture which says that the blood of Christ alone cleanses us from unrighteousness. And that's why they build this altar. First and foremost. First things first. Now as we continue on to verse 4, we see the next thing they do. It says they keep the Feast of Booths. So let me read the verse. It says, and they keep the Feast of Booths as it is written, and they offer the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, each day as required, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. So the verse references the Feast of Booths. Some of your versions may say the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the same feast, just a different terminology that is used there. And as I consider this feast, I, I, I have to think that there, were, there was no more perfect feast than this one for the Jews to kind of kick things back off again as far as their dedication and sacrifice to the Lord. And the reason why I say that is there were three major feasts that the Jews had to celebrate, that they had to come back. They, there were seven feasts in the Jewish calendar. Four of those feasts could be celebrated you know, at your homes, whatever it may be. But there were three major feasts in which the Jews particularly the males, and they usually brought their families, had to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate. One of those was the Feast of Tabernacles, or also known as the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Tabernacles was designed to commemorate the time when the children of Israel had left Egypt. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt. Moses led them out. They crossed over the Red Sea, and they had their freedom. And from there, they began to march until they would eventually come to the Promised Land. And it took them 40 years of wandering through the wilderness before they could enter into, led by Joshua, into the Promised Land. And somehow, during 40 years, some 4 million, estimated to be about 4.5 million people, it was provided for them in the desert enough water for all of them to survive, enough food for all of them to survive, enough shelter and protection from the enemy nations and people that are around them to provide. How did that happen? Well, it happened because God was faithful to them. God preserved them. God provided for them. And the Feast of Tabernacles was designed to commemorate that. So the Jewish people, they were told for one week out of a year, during this month that we're describing here, they were to go out into the fields. So they have a nice home and a backyard and a swimming pool and all that. But they were to go out into the fields and they were to build shacks for themselves to live in for a period of seven days. 
And they were specifically told, you can read it in the Bible, that they were specifically told not to make good shacks for themselves. Not to be airtight and watertight and all these things, but to purposefully leave sort of holes up in the ceiling as they lay branches down and all that kind of stuff for the purpose that when the kids would lay there at night and look up into the stars, no texting, no video games, no TV, just lay there looking up into the stars, they would turn to their parents and say, what are we doing out here again? I have a very nice, comfortable bed at home. Why are we lying out here in the middle of the, the open elements like this? And it would be an opportunity for the parents to say to them, we do this to remind ourselves of how God was faithful to our people and how God preserved them and he provided for them during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Now, I said earlier that I think this was a perfect sacrifice to begin with or a feast to begin with because here are these people who had just spent five months, they estimate, going 1,000 miles through that same desert, the other side of the desert, but going through that same desert to come back to Israel. They had just slept in their portable shacks, if you will. And they had spent that time and they had seen the faithfulness of God because God had faithfully brought them back to the land themselves. It was just hours, or excuse me, just months before that they were captives in a foreign land a thousand miles away, and yet God stirred their hearts, as we read in chapter one, and brought them to this place. And so they commemorate that and they celebrate that. No doubt this feast meant a lot more to them than some of the other brethren that had come before that had never experienced that sort of wandering period. So they celebrate the Feast of Booze. But they also celebrate it because look what it says in verse 4, as it is written. So as I shared earlier, there's a commitment to obey the Word of God. Could an argument have been raised and made that, you know what, yeah, I know the Bible says that, but that was a long time ago. You know, they... There were reasons why God told them to do that. But, you know, here we are a thousand years later. Do we really have to take the Bible so literally? Well, I suspect if somebody raised that objection amongst the crowd, that people quickly got on that guy and said, hey, man, don't talk that way. It was that sort of thinking that sent us to Babylon in the first place here. If the Bible says that we're going to do it, we're going to obey it. They didn't rationalize it away at all. And so they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the next thing that they do you also see in verse 4, it says, they kept the feast as it is written, and they offered the daily burnt offerings. Now, as I pointed out earlier, the altar of sacrifice represents the cross of Christ. So if the altar of sacrifice represents the cross of Christ, the sacrifice on that altar represents the sacrifice on the cross, Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is sort of the, uh, the picture, the symbolic picture for us that we can make application to. But in another way, the burnt offering that is on that sacrifice, it represents you and I as well. It represents followers of Christ. I pointed this out when we were studying 2 Chronicles, that the Jews had a number of sacrifices or offerings that they would bring to the temple area and all these things. A number of different things that they would offer. And each offering was designed to communicate a different attitude of the heart to God. And so there was this burnt offering, but there were also the wave offering and there was the grain offering. And each one of those was different. And so you came there and you said, look, this is what's on my heart. This is what I just want to let God know. And the priest would instruct you. Well, then you need to bring the grain offering for that particular thing. Well, the burn offering was an offering that communicated total consecration. Because with the burn offering, all parts of the animal were completely and totally and entirely consumed. And so that's why I say it represents us. 
Because as we are in that period of uh, returning from a period of wandering, to do so requires that we come to God and we say, you know what, Lord? Total sacrifice. Total, complete consumption of the sacrifice in the fire. Lord, I commit myself completely and totally in consecration to you. What got the Jews in this place to begin with? It was compromise. It was sort of just, yeah, I know it says that, but it doesn't really apply to me in this area. It was that, you know what, Lord, you have, you have lordship over 80% of my life. I think that's reasonable, God, when the reality is God demands 100% lordship of our lives. And the burnt offering is a communication to God. God, I'm giving you 100%. Total consecration of who I am to you. So as we return to the word, or excuse me, as we return, we begin with the word. We agree with God that sin separates us from him. We return to the place of sacrifice saying, if it wasn't for the cross of Christ, I could have no relationship with you. But then the next step is total consecration. It's saying, Jesus, you are Lord. Not over a portion of my my life, but over every area of my life. You're not just Lord over my Sundays, but my Mondays, and my Wednesday afternoons, and my Friday nights. Jesus, I got into this mess because I held back areas of my life from you. And I said to you, you can have, you know, A, B, and C, but you have no right to D, E, and F. That's the problem. And total consecration says, you know, no more thinking like that. Lord, it's all yours. I surrender it all to you. Total consecration. Now we move on to verse 6. Verse 6 says, Now from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. And so... They gave money to the Masons and the Carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. Well, we said, first things first, return to the word, return to sacrifice, return to total consecration. But now they're prepared to go a little bit deeper and now they're preparing to rebuild the temple. And so, as Solomon did, we learn this in 1 Kings chapter 5, Solomon reached out to the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon was an area just north of Israel today, what is known as Lebanon. And in these towns there of Tyre and Sidon, there was a legendary... There were cedar resources there, cedar trees that were legendary. People were like, man, that wood up there, the cedars of Lebanon, man, there's nothing like it. And so here's Solomon. He's about to build this temple. And Solomon says, nothing like it? Well, then get it for me. I want the very best. And I'll spend whatever it takes. Now, Solomon was extremely wealthy. He was the leader of uh, Israel at the zenith of Israel's power and influence and wealth and all of these things here. So he could go get that. But now here, you have these refugees, really, returning to the land. Probably not a lot of expendable income. They have plenty of other things they could spend their money on, but they say, you know what, if Solomon did it that way, we're going to do it that way as well. We're not going to skimp, we're not going to save, we're going to do the very best, and we're going to offer that for the Lord. And so, as you see there in verse 7, they go to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, and they bring back those same resources. Despite the fact that they don't have any other resources like King Solomon had financially, nonetheless, they go and they get these fine cedars of Lebanon. Because why? Because they're dedicated to give God their very best. Another thing that that shows me is this. These guys know they don't need to reinvent the wheel. I think that's important. 
Solomon had come before them and did a pretty good job erecting a temple. It was a magnificent structure, one of the wonders of the world. And these guys know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Let's follow the pattern of those that have come before us. And so there's the phrase, look to your fathers. If you will, they look to their fathers and they take a moment to just consider the great men and women of God that have gone before them. And I think that's very wise. And I think it's something that you and I should do as well. To essentially say, you know, what was their secret? It's one of the reasons why, out at the bookstore, we offer biographies of some of the great men and women of the faith that have gone before us. So that we can read, we can look at their lives, and we can say, you know what, that's pretty remarkable. And we can learn from their example. What were their practices? What were some of their spiritual disciplines? You know, you have to be honest. These guys and gals, they didn't become great in the faith by accident. It wasn't just something that happened and they were sort of lucky that these things happened. But it was because they committed themselves to these things. And we can learn from them. We have another resource, and I brought it up here because I, I honestly think that this is a book that every one of us should read. And I'm too busy. I don't have time. You know what? Spread it out over a year and read a little bit each day. Every one of us can do that. And this particular book is called Good to Great in God's Eyes. It's by an author and a Bible teacher that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, Chip Ingram. And it's a, a tremendous work, and it's certainly worth your investment of time and the money that it would have cost to pick it up. Now, as I said, the book is called Good to Great in God's Eyes. Some of you in the business field, you know that there's a resource that is out there that is called Good to Great, just simply Good to Great. It's by Jim Collins. It's a, it's a tremendous work. Jim Collins is a sociologist, and one of the things that intrigued him and that he wanted to devote a year or two of his life to was to discover and figure out why is it that two good companies, same field, they're both in the pharma pharmacy business, whatever it may be, but they're two good companies and they're both fine. But for some reason, that one went from being good to being great. Why is that? Is there a pattern? Were they just lucky and sort of circumstances were what they were? Or was there something that they did and committed themselves to? And I think Jim Collins looks at 10 different comparisons of these companies and he was able to pull out patterns. That's why a lot of people in the business world read that. Well, my friend here, Chip Ingram, was reading that resource as well. And he began to think and he said, you know what? I've come to notice a similar thing in the Christian walk. That there are folks that are good Christians. But then there's also folks that are great Christians. People that every one of us in this room, we would look at and we would say, man, I, I just wish I had a walk like that guy did or that gal did. You know, they pray the way they pray and they follow the Lord the way they do and they give the way they give and they serve the way they serve. And I just wa wish my walk with the Lord was very similarly uh, or similar. And so Chip Ingram, like Jim Collins, began to study people and look at patterns. And he discovered patterns of, it used, quote unquote, great Christians. And this is what he said. He says this in the book. In my journey, I've begun, to, I've begun to observe that great Christians have certain practices in common. As I have surveyed the lives of great men and women of faith, I've noticed certain patterns that I consider to be valid evidence of the difference between an ordinary and an extraordinary Christian life. Christians who develop these practices with the right motivation are powerfully used by God for His glory. And then he goes on in the book to explain what those patterns are. And that's no different from what the Apostle Paul suggested that you and I do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, the Apostle, he says, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. Paul essentially said, look at my life. Look at the patterns that I've established for my life. Look at my walk with the Lord and imitate that as well. And the children of Israel now, 
as they're returning to the place of restoration, they're following the example of the great ones that have gone before them. And as you and I are looking to return and go deeper in our relationship with Christ, we can do the same thing. And I think we should do the same thing. Where we find a person or a, mo- a multiple group of people that we admire in the faith. Someone you look at and you say, I wish my walk was like that as well. And then follow their example. Take notice of the things they do on a daily basis. Try to understand their pattern of thinking. How do they come to the conclu- that conclusion about what they're doing and why they're doing it? How did that pattern of behavior develop in their lives? And if you need to, ask them. And I, I bet you they'd be delighted. If they're a great Christian, they'll be delighted to talk to you about their faith and how you can grow in your faith. And so the children of Israel, they return to the land, they begin to rebuild the temple according to the pattern of Solomon. The thinking is, hey, look, if it worked for Solomon, then it'll work for us. And so they do that. Now, let's go on to verse 8. Verse 8 says, now in the second year, after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, they made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests, and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons, the sons of Judah, together, uh, supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites and the son, their sons and brothers. And so, continuing this pattern of imitating the greats, they begin construction in the second month. The second month was when Solomon began construction. I don't think it's by coincidence that they do so. The materials are gathered, and they got to work. They returned to the Word of God. They erected an altar for sacrifice, and now they're prepared to lay the foundation of the temple. Look at verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. They have to try and imagine. I think it's helpful if you do just take a moment to sort of imagine all that is going on here. There are thousands of people that have returned to the area of Jerusalem and now that have gathered together there on this Temple Mount. Now, if you've been to Israel or you've seen pictures of the Temple Mount, try to wipe those out of your mind for a moment here. Because what we know today as the Temple Mount area, that was erected basically during the times of Jesus. This is four or 500 years before that. At this particular time of what we're reading about, the Temple Mount wasn't a long, big, flat area, football area, I think 10 football field area that is up there now that lots of people could gather and convene on. Rather, it was just a mountain. And you have all the loose edges and there's high points and low points, but there's this particular high point where the brazen altar is going to be. And all the leaders are gathered there at that particular high point, And all of the people, thousands of people, are gathered around them, some lower, some higher, on this particular mountain. Joshua we learned the high priest is there. Zerubbabel, the governor, is there. And they've taken their place in the front of the congregation. It says their kinsmen, their children, are gathered there with them. Other key leaders have gathered there. We know that there's the company of the Levites. There's the priest. So you have scores of people that are gathered sort of in the center and then thousands of people that are surrounding them on this mountain as it sort of goes down uh, in this particular way. And then Asaph the choir director. It's not Asaph, it's the sons of Asaph, but the choir director there with various folks with trumpets and cymbals 
gathers, and as all of these people are there, prepared to, to dedicate this first stone of this new temple, finally with everyone gathered, the choir director, he calls out, and he says, for he is good, referring to God. And it says there in the scripture, it's a responsive calling, that the multitude of the people then cry back out, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And then it says in verse 11, notice, and there was a great shout. A great shout. Look at the verse. It says, and all the people shouted. Can you imagine a thousand people or more or thousands of people all shouting at the same time? There's a silence. Everything is sort of settled down. Finally, the choir director comes out and he says, for he is good. And everyone yells back, whatever, for his steadfast love endures forever. Thank you, Scott. His steadfast love endures forever. And then the people say, yes! And they scream it out. And they cry it out. Remember, less than a year ago, perhaps, maybe a little bit longer, but just about a year ago, these people were captives in a foreign land. And now they're standing on the holy Temple Mount. Just imagine how it must have felt to be standing in that spot. To have been set free from captivity and now to be taking part in the laying of the foundation stone of the rebuilt temple of God. Truly, God had been very faithful to His people. And I wonder if from time to time you just stop and do that. You just sort of stop and look back to where you were maybe a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago. Do you stop and consider just how good and how faithful the Lord has been in your life? Because we know from the Scripture, you and I, every one of us in this room, we were in a period of captivity in our not-too-distant past. The Scripture says this. It says it in the book of John, Jesus. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And so, he says, if the Son sets you free, then you are free indeed. Every one of us was in captivity. We were slaves to our sin, but the Son set us free, and so we are free indeed. And now we can gather at this Temple Mount. We can come to this holy place when just a little while ago we were in captivity and we could say, how did I get here? God, you've been so good. You've been so faithful. You've been so kind. This is remarkable. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, the Scripture says. Look at what God has done in our lives, in this room. Look what God has done in our lives. And maybe it was a year ago, or maybe it was 25 years ago. But look what God has done. There was a period in every one of our lives where we were aimless. We were living for this moment. What's the next thing that will satisfy my attention? What's the next thing that will bring me pleasure? But now we are a people that have purpose. We live for self and selfish desires. But now we live for God and for others. We were people that were consumed with the temporal. But now our eyes are firmly fixed on the eternal. God has done a wonderful thing in changing our lives. And no wonder... These folks are shouting here, God, you've been so good. You know, there's the modern worship song that we sing that it says, when I think about the Lord, and you're probably familiar with it, but the words go like this. It says, when I think about the Lord, how he saved me, how he raised me, how he filled me with the Holy Ghost, how he healed me to the uttermost. When I think about the Lord, how he picked me up, how he turned me around, and how he placed my feet on solid ground. What's it make me want to do? It makes me want to shout. Thank you. It makes me want to shout, Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, you are worthy of all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise. That's exactly what these guys are doing. God has been 
very good to each of us. Amen? Amen. Absolutely. And the Jewish people had not properly sacrificed like they are doing now in close to 75 years. But here they are doing so. Now let's, let's be honest. The visible glory of God is not present there at that sacrifice. His Shekinah glory had left the temple, we, we learn in the, the book of Ezekiel. There's no temple in front of them. There's no Ark of the Covenant. All of those glorious things are gone. But what they have is a simple, humble starting point. And it's a perfect place to begin. Because the Scripture says this. It says it in the Psalm, Psalm 22. It says, Yet you are holy, and you are enthroned on the praises of your people. So as that choir director, as he sang out, for he is good, and as the thousands of people, they responded, and they said, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, whatever the words are exactly that they say, the Lord, if you will, was invited into their presence and He was enthroned on the praises of His people. They extend an invitation, if you will, to the presence of God as if God needs an invitation and He responds and the people rejoice. Now look at verse 12 because we have a slight twist in the story. Not everybody rejoices. There's probably a little bit of rejoicing going on in all of their hearts, but there are some that also are weeping. Look at verse 12. It says, Now many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. So in the midst of this great congregation of worshipers, there are those that are, as it says there, weeping. Older men who knew that this temple, this stone that was lying in front of them there, this, that they're the dedicating now, that this was nothing compared to the glory of the first temple. These are older guys that had seen the glory of Solomon's temple, and now what stood before them was essentially just a pile of rocks. And so they weep. And they weep probably for a variety of reasons. They, they weep over the disparity between what they knew and what they see. But they also weep, no doubt, over their sin, which had caused what is in front of them here and that period of captivity. And I think all of us, we can understand. Yeah, I understand they're weeping. We probably would weep as well. But I would suggest to you this, that there is a danger in the weeping. G. Campbell Morgan, who's a wonderful Bible commentator, he said this. He said, the backward look which discounts the present activity is always peril. So here's thousands of people that are rejoicing at what God was doing in their lives now. I was a slave, and now I've been set free, and here I find myself on the Temple Mount worshiping God. How did I get here? When just a year ago, I was in prison somewhere, if you want to think of it that way. God's doing a fabulous work in their hearts, but then there are others, because they're looking backward, they put in peril that which is present. Did this present temple compare with the previous temple? Certainly not. But I would add something to you. Not yet. No, I know it doesn't now, but not yet. And I think that's key. Because if our looking back prevents us from looking forward, then I think we are in great danger. Because that looking back will paralyze us and prevent us from moving forward. Now, the Scripture gives us greater insight as to what's going on in the hearts of the children of Israel. Remember, 
that there were other books in the Bible that were written at the same time as the book of Ezra. So the book of Ezra is pretty much just a history book. This is what went on, just the facts, ma'am, and they present the facts. The books of Haggai, the book of Zechariah, they're prophetic books which give you and I, if we study them at the same time as the book of Ezra, insight into what's going on in people's hearts. Not just the facts on the outside, but what's going on on the inside of people here. And we learn in the book of Haggai and the book of Zechariah a little insight into this dichotomy that was forming between the older brethren and the younger brethren. And so God gave these guys insight in one way or another, and they write about it between those that are rejoicing at the temple stone being laid and those that are weeping that it doesn't compare to the previous temple. Were the good old days good? Sure they were. That's why they were called the good old days. But that doesn't mean that future days won't be even better. So Haggai chapter 2, it says this, starting in verse 1. I'm going to put it on the screen. You can turn there if you'd like in your Bibles. But it says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. So we see it corresponds with the beginning of Ezra chapter 3. Remember, it begins in the seventh month. Haggai continues, It says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? So here's the prophet Haggai. He's coming together. All the people are gathered there. And he poses a question. Who amongst you out here were here 75 years ago and have seen the temple in its former glory? And a bunch of older folks, they kind of raise their hand. I was, I was. And a few people here and there. And he goes on and he says, And how do you see it now? And he answers his own question. He says, Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And no doubt each one of them just sort of lowered their head, kind of shook it and said, yep, absolutely. It's nothing compared to what it was then. And then Haggai the prophet, motivated by the leading of God's Spirit, he says this, yet now be strong. Turns to the governor, he says, O Zerubbabel, be strong, declares the Lord. He turns to the high priest Joshua, he says, be strong, Joshua the high priest. He looks out at the people. He says, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. He says, work. Because they could be discouraged and say, what's the use? Why bother? He says, work, because I'm with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you, with your people, when you came up out of Egypt, he says, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. He goes on, he says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of the nation shall come in, and I will fill this house, this stone that is lying in front of us is going to be a house, a temple building. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And then notice this phrase, and I've underlined it. It said, and the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In this place I will give peace, declares the Lord. A key problem that Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people of Israel that had returned from Babylon were going to have to overcome was discouragement. The discouragement that came because there was an older group that was comparing the present with the good old days of the past. Specifically, Zechariah tells us this was their thinking. It says in Zechariah 4.10 that they were despising the days of small things. I'm of the opinion that God wants to accomplish amazing things in our coming days. 
And I believe, certainly, I like to look back. I like to consider the good old days, whatever it may be. I'm 43. I've been walking with the Lord for about 25 years now. And during that time, God has done amazing things in my life for me, in me, with me, through me, and all these things. And it's been a pleasure, and it's great to look back and see that. But I would suggest to each one of you that that's only the beginning. That God continually wants to accomplish amazing things in our coming days. You know, sometimes when I work with younger men and women here at the church, and I'm not quite sure where I fit, to be honest. Am I young or am I old? Well, the young people say, you're old. And the old people say, no, you're young. You know, whatever. Um, so I'm somewhere in the middle there. Sometimes I feel young, sometimes I feel old here. But I want to guard myself against that sort of thinking that, you know that word, you see it in old movies, harumph? You know, like, hey, let's do this, ah, harumph. You know what I mean? I don't know what it means. I don't know how to spell it. But I, I, I know the general idea is, ah, shut up, kid. It, that, that's not appropriate any longer. And youth and young folks will come with exuberance, with passion, with excitement, and I don't want to be one of those folks that says, harumph. I want to have a heart that says, let's go for it. As opposed to a heart that says, ah, that'll never work. We tried that. Uh, we did that, you know, and times were different then. People really cared about things like that now, but they don't care anymore like that, so it'll never work. We're not going to do it. I don't want to have that kind of heart. I want to be a person that says, let's go for it. What does God want to do? Because the reality is this. Here we are, we're approaching the first Sunday of the new year. Kevin prayed, or started, I don't know what he, he did in the beginning there, and he mentioned here, here we are a year and a day, or a day and a year now, closer to the coming of the Lord. And that's when he, he brought up the point about gathering together the saints as we see the day of the Lord drawing near. We are closer to the day of the Lord drawing near. You look around us, you see the signs. I would suggest to you that the signs are very clear that the Lord is returning and he's coming back very, very soon. And I rejoice in that fact, and I'm glad for it. But as I think about those days drawing near, I also think about the heart of God. Because if the days are drawing near for the Lord to return, isn't it the heart of the Lord to get as many people on that bus as he possibly can before he does so? His heart's not the opposite. Where, sorry, buddy, you missed the bus. God wants everybody that is possible to be on that bus, so to speak, here. God is going to pour out his spirit in these last days. And the reality is this, God's going to use somebody. And I would like to suggest, if he's going to use somebody, hey, why not use us? And why not use me? Lord, I present myself to, you, to your use. As we learn in the scripture, there's that expression, here I am, Lord, use me. So we come now to the first Sunday of a new year, and we ask ourselves, what do you think God wants to do? Well, the answer to that question for every one of us is, great things. So where are you today in your walk with the Lord. As we start the beginning of a new year and you look back, are you further along on January 4th, 2015 than you were on January 4th, 2014? Or have you wandered a little bit? Have you drifted a little bit? Have you slid back a little bit? Well, if you're a person that has been wandering off and you're wondering what exactly is the path of return, well, we've looked at that today. All you really need to know is this. You can return and the Lord will receive you back. Or maybe, you know what, you're one of these older gentlemen. Not older in age, but older in just sort of thinking. Maybe you're a bit worn out. Maybe you've seen God do great things in your life and through your life and others in the past, and you're beginning to wonder if God can replicate that or even top that in the future. Or maybe you're a young person. Not in age, but in spirit. 
and you're fired up for all that God is going to do and to accomplish. I'm not sure exactly where you are. To be honest with myself, over this last week, I was all three of those people. A little bit of a drifter, I was a little bit of an old man, a little bit of a young man with exuberance. I was all three of those people. But I would suggest to you that all of us collectively, to all of us collectively as a body, that God wants to do a remarkable thing in and through us in this coming year. And I think all of our response should be simply, you know what, let's go for it. Let's present ourselves to God as yielded vessels to the Master for His youth. Let's present ourselves to Him saying, you know what, God, if you're going to use someone, why not use me? Here I am, Lord, I make myself available. And I would suggest to you that if every one of us had attitudes like that, and based on the track record of who God is, God is a good and a faithful God, that we will have, when we come to this point next year, or we come to the conclusion of 2015, that we will have much cause as a people for rejoicing because God is faithful and God is good. Amen? Amen. Father, we dedicate ourselves to you now in a fresh way. Father, we thank you for the coming of a year that really just allows us sort of to take inventory and make some determinations to kind of set some goals and plans. And Father, we... Uh, we really want you to be the center of all of that. We want to accomplish things at work. We want to accomplish things with our family and in our schooling. We want to accomplish things in our personal lives and so on and so forth. But ultimately, first and foremost, Lord, we want to be able to look back on 2015 and see that we are further along in our journey with you than we were at the start of this year. And so, Father, for those that have been wandering, Lord, would you just sort of impact their heart with the undeniable reality, really, that comes from your Spirit, that they can return, that they'll be accepted, Lord, that you'll, your arms will be open wide and said, I've been waiting for you. I'm so glad you're here. Lord, for those of us, perhaps, that are a bit tired, worn out, we've served our time, and now we'll just coast to heaven. Lord, would you stir up our hearts again? Move us, motivate us, use us. And Father, we thank you for those amongst us that are rejoicing at all you're doing and going to do. And we pray, Lord, that their exuberance would inspire every one of us. Lord, you'd keep them running hard after you. Lord, you'd use them, every one of us, really. But you'd use us, Lord, to bring you the glory that you deserve and to introduce others to the kingdom of God. Father, make this year a special year of great blessing and an outpouring of your Spirit. Lord, through the people of Calvary Chapel, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.